Wouldn't it be a dull world if the only color of the rocks was the color of what is called nice or a kind of a gray pebble you find along the side of the road that comes out of a kind of a granite. It's a metamorphosed rock spelled G-N-E-I-S-S. If you pick up just a gray pebble, it's a very plain, ugly, ordinary rock that you might find in a rock crusher that they use to surface highways with. Would it be a boring world if that was the only color of rocks? That there weren't any other colors we could look at and appreciate and enjoy? No minerals? But instead of that, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of hues and shadings and textures and cleavage properties of all sorts of minerals and rocks. I'm very blessed to have a diamond ring. I collected the diamonds in that ring over a period of many, many years beginning back in the 1950s. One of the largest diamonds was an old mine cut, it is called, because it has a hole in the bottom of it. It's an old antique diamond that was probably cut sometime in the mid-1800s, and it's just as bright as it was then. It has more facets than the modern ones, but they let the light out the bottom, so it doesn't have quite the brilliance. But it was slightly misshapen, it was slightly yellow, and it was an old antique cut. So when I bought it, it was appraised for $300, but it weighs 1.61 carats. Many years later, we had a church member that actually was a diamond dealer in South Africa, and he helping me to actually go into a diamond dealer on the streets in Johannesburg helped me buy at a discount a 1.05 carat yellow diamond for $500. Now I've got $800 in my diamond so far. Milt Scott gave me one of these years ago in a different ring, the two little tiny ones I bought in Hong Kong at a very great discount about 15 years ago and put them in cufflinks. But the cufflinks kept loosening and coming off. One of them came off when I was asleep and an airliner was in my seat. And I thought, I better do something about this. I'm going to lose this diamond. So I got an idea and I sketched it out. I wanted it to look like a rock pile, I told the guy. So I went into a Pasadena, California jeweler, and I had a sketch of what looked like just a crusty rock pile to put them all together. I call it a cairn, which is Irish for a rock pile. And that's what it looks like. And we put all the diamonds together. Now today, I have no idea what the exact replacement value would be on that ring. But I'll guarantee you it's astronomically above what I paid for it so many years ago. I can get in a dark room with just a few pin spots of light, like an auditorium, and that ring just goes wild. And it's beautiful. I never tire of looking at it. I intend to pass it on to my children when I go. As a matter of fact, it's in my will. But if I get obliterated by a Peterbilt truck tomorrow, uh, my sons and my wife first and my sons inherit everything I have. So I hope to be able to leave that to them. You're all familiar with birthstones. Maybe you know what yours is. I don't know what mine is, but there are carborundums and diamonds and rubies and topaz and emeralds and amethysts and jaspers and opals and chalcedony and every type of semi-precious and precious stone. And if we didn't have those stones about us to enjoy, maybe you followed the royal wedding and maybe you saw some of the commentary from ABC and you saw actual pictures at home of the royal crown jewelry in the Tower of London, the Star of Africa in the scepter and the crown that Queen Elizabeth wears, 
a huge diamond, literally bigger than a hen's egg, about the size of an ostrich egg, and it's flawless, perfect, no black spots, no little imperfections in it. Actually, the two diamonds, the one in the orb that is carried by the royalty of England and the one in the crown, were cut from the same great large chunk of a raw diamond many, many years ago. Well, you've heard of the Hope Diamond and many famous diamonds and so on, and empires, I suppose, have been lost, and many lives have been lost, and wars have been fought, and people have been assassinated to possess some of those very large and fabulously, I suppose, priceless diamonds that exist. And so they're beautiful. They're fabulous. Every young bride, mentioning a moment ago in the sermonette, courtship, Surely every bride, even though uh, she might know the prospective husband cannot afford a lot of money, I certainly couldn't when I was courting my intended. I went down and got myself in hock for about three years at the store. My sister and brother-in-law went with me to pick out the original engagement ring, and we had to sign a contract, and I had to pay so many dollars per month. But I had to get my intended a little diamond. It's just something you do. Now, that is still beautiful to look at after all of these years, something you treasure and you keep, and many times mothers and grandmothers will pass on their diamond rings, wedding rings, and engagement rings to their grandchildren so that they can enjoy them during their lifetime. But have you ever just thought about the concept of having everything the same, of uniformity, of lack of difference or lack of variety in the world or among people? What if all we ever ate was potatoes, big Irish potatoes, and the only food we had? Now, you remember ancient Israel for many, many years in the, old, in the wilderness only had one kind of food. They got to the point, they said it was coming out their nose, out their ears, they couldn't stand it, they didn't want any more manna, and they began to rebel. Well, it was a test, perhaps, of their character, and God certainly intended that eventually they'd be able to enjoy all types of good foods, and that's clearly set forth in the Scripture. But what if we had to eat? Every day of our life, potato bread, potato skins, potato pies, baked potatoes, fried potatoes, cottage potatoes, cold potatoes, raw potatoes, potato salad without anything else except the potatoes. What if there wasn't any other kind of food but one food which has everything we need to give us life and to keep us alive, and it's just a big old ugly potato with warts on it? A brown-skinned potato with white flesh in the middle is all you ever see. It's all that will grow. It's all that exists in, in the soil out here. It's the only plant, the only root, the only herb, the only thing for edible foods. Everything else got thorns on it or a rind about that thick. It's all shell and no nut in the middle. I mean, there's just nothing else to eat but potatoes. It just drive you crazy. I mean, the, the, the whole world would commit suicide, I think, because we couldn't stand it. Now, what if all that we could drink would be milk? from brown Swiss cattle. And the only meat we could eat would be brown Swiss, that one cow. No variety, just one cow. Brown Swiss, you can milk it, you can eat it, you can take its hide and hold your pants up with it, you can wrap it around your feet and call them shoes, you can take the hair and you can braid the hide and make it into a rope, you can utilize it like the Indians did and like we modern people do, to utilize everything that the cow has, so far as its bones and all of the products that it could provide as a living or a dead animal, but that's the only animal for man's survival on this earth. And then what if we all looked exactly alike? How could we tell each other apart? 
It's interesting to me that God did not begin his plan of salvation and his plan of reproduction with identical twins. He began his plan, and we can turn to that in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, with a man called Adam and a woman which was called Isha, coming from Ish, taken from one of Adam's ribs, the most perfect job of surgery in the history of the world, apparently a wound that was opened and closed while the man was in deep sleep or under some sort of divine anesthesia, no scar remaining that we know of, and incidentally he didn't pass on the defect to his progeny in case people are wondering why aren't we all missing one rib. Well, Hebrew children are not born circumcised, they're born uncircumcised after thousands of years of practicing circumcision. But it says in the first chapter of the book of Genesis beginning in verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. When I grew up in Oregon, my uncle living with my grandmother Armstrong, and I have a fascinating film. My sister is visiting us right now, and she brought it. And up there in Oregon in 1946, we had all gone up to Grandma's 80th birthday. And Grandma, clear up in age 76 to 80, 85, 90, lived on a farm where they had no electricity, no running water. There was no facility indoors. It had an old outhouse that we used for all the time that that farm building stood. And as a boy, I was able to work in the fields. And there was every kind of fruits and nuts and grapes and herbs and every kind of growing thing that they raised on the farm. Plus, they had plums, peaches pears, about four kinds of apples. Uh, they had both English walnuts and black walnuts. They had about four different types of grapes. Uh, a kid could go out in those days and wander through the fields and the hedgerows and wander around my grandmother's farm and just get stuffed, just absolutely glutted with food, with your hands all dark from the grapes and your face smeared, you know, with grape stains and everything. Just fantastically fed with what you could pluck from the vine or the tree. And when these things were ripe, there's nothing more delicious than plucking a really ripe pear or a juicy peach from a tree and simply rubbing the pear on your shirt sleeve and starting to munch it when you're walking along looking at the birds in the field. It's marvelous. And Oregon was known then, as I suppose it is now, for a tremendous variety of all types of foodstuffs. And it was fabulous to be able to see the tremendous variety on that one 40-acre farm. Now, God did not just bring forth one herb or one type of fruit tree, but an almost limitless variety. And in different climates, there are different types of varieties, as we know, in tropical and subtropical climates than there are in the temperate or the colder climates. And the fruit tree, after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God, uh, God saw that it was good. Now later on he talked about the lights in the firmament, great lights, the greater light to rule the day, verse 16, the lesser light, meaning the moon and the sun, to rule the night, and the stars also. In verse 20, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales. Why? And every living creature, the word is nephesh, that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly. Why? Why did God create an elephant? 
Now, if you didn't know what an elephant was, if children didn't learn very quickly in coloring books and then growing in the most fabulous experience in their lives, and every child should go to the circus. If there's a circus within hundreds of miles of your home at some time when your child is large enough to be ambulatory and maybe two or three, and he just giggled and squealed and watched tigers and lions and giraffes and elephants going through their paces, you must take your children to a circus. Where else can they see animals like that actually performing? I'll never forget going out and helping to work and carry water and uh, do anything I could to hire myself on or even sneak under the tent when those circuses would come to Eugene, Oregon, to the old fairgrounds, and we kids would run across vacant fields and go over there and just pester people until we could get in free. And I would go in and see those circuses, and it was fabulous. But you know, if you could only see an elephant as a fossil specimen and simply wonder what that trunk was for, and men speculate it was some kind of a nozzle to drink through, but not know the tremendous things that elephants can do with trunks, like reach out and grab a peanut from your hand and then turn it and blow it up into their mouth, or actually take hay with it, or uproot great trees with it, or carry logs with it, as they do in India, where they're used as beasts, just like a man would use a bulldozer or a tractor. But why did God create all these various creatures, like a rhinoceros with two horns growing out of its head? Why the seemingly limitless and infinite variety? Now, each genesis kind is capable of branching out in that one species into seemingly limitless variety. When you read the article on hummingbirds, you're going to be astounded to find out there are literally hundreds and hundreds of varieties of hummingbirds, some with chin whiskers and crests, some with long lyre-shaped uh, tails with like a bird of paradise or like a peacock feather on one end but just a bony structure, others with little bitty short tails like that, little diminutive feet. The longest is about nine inches long. The tiniest weighs exactly as much as a dime. It's called the bee hummingbird. It's as big as a bumblebee. It's in the island of Cuba. It goes so fast and it's so tiny that you can hardly see it. And it's fascinating. Can you imagine how tiny the egg is? The egg of a little bee hummingbird is the size of a BB that you used to play with as a pellet gun or a BB shot. And yet there's a little bird inside of that little egg that it lays in a little nest that is smaller by far than a dime. The nest of that little bird is smaller than your little finger if you're a female, your little fingernail. Tiny little bird. And yet it darts around so rapidly and is a part of the hummingbird family, a genesis kind. Now looking at men for a moment, when I go to buy my clothing, I was out in California recently and had an opportunity to stop by Malibu where I buy my clothes. It's a cut-rate place, and I go in there, but so do a lot of people, uh, sports personalities and baseball and basketball players, and there on the wall is a picture of me standing alongside Kareem Jab uh, Abdul-Jabbar, formerly Lou Alcindor. Now he is only 7'2". And I am, in the morning, when I first wake up and get my shoes on, about 5'9". Later on in the day, I'm 5'8 and a half or 5'8 and 3 quarters. But anyway, I like to say 5'9 because that's a nice sounding number. When I stand beside him, I look like my head barely comes to his belt line, to his waist. Now, I know it's higher than that, but it doesn't look that way. He is so well proportioned, he looks like a normal-sized man because there's nothing else around us. There's just the wing of the falcon in the background and two figures standing there. Looks like a big, normal, well-proportioned black man standing with a little pygmy of a white man beside him. And I look like a pygmy. Now, in the human family, 
If you were to go over to Norway and see some of these great big Swedes, there was a guy called the Swedish Angel who used to be the doorman of Grauman's Chinese Theater when I was there to see Henry Fonda and some of the others put their feet and their hands in the cement one time in about 1944 or so. The Swedish Angel was eight feet tall. He was bald. He probably suffered from gigantism, but he was a huge man. His feet were, you know, just gigantic. Every part of him was gigantic. His hands were like a massive ham, and he was just a huge thing. He would stroll around there in this bright red band kind of a uniform, like a band leader, a doorman's uniform, and he was a tourist attraction. He was a curiosity. For some time he had been a professional wrestler, I think, and many people saw him wrestling. Nobody could throw him because he was just too big. Can you imagine a man eight feet tall? I think eventually he died of whatever it was that was a sort of an affliction that caused him to be that big. But men have been much taller than that. The Neanderthal man was much taller, much broader, much bigger than that. And of course we read in the Bible of Saul, who was head and shoulders above all the men in Israel, but he came against a man called Goliath, and Goliath was perhaps twelve feet tall, twelve feet tall and weighed as much as probably three ordinary men. An ordinary man could not even pick up the spear. The spearhead that Goliath threw weighed tw 25 pounds out on the end of a long spear shaft, and I couldn't even hold that up because my muscles aren't strong enough. The, the point would simply go into the ground. I'd have to have two hands to hold that in some way or another. Infinite variety in the human family. You can go to the Ituri Forest, or you can go down into Central and South America, you can see races of little pygmies that are about the size of some of your children at age five, yet they are mature males. Of course, we know Chihuahuas and Great Danes and all of that, so I won't belabor that point. Wouldn't it be amazing if you took a trip to Germany and you got over there and everybody spoke exactly the way they do in Tyler, Texas? Why would you go? Now, some people get irritated. Some Americans go over like the couple that got off the train in Paris and looked around at all the signs and heard the people speaking in this funny language, and the one fellow said to his wife, look at all these foreigners around here. And he didn't really realize that he was the foreigner, that he was out of place. But everything was so strange to him, and a lot of Americans are that way. They resent people who are different, who don't look the same or don't speak the same. But wouldn't it be a boring world if you went over there and the menu said chicken fried steak? in English. I mean, if you couldn't go over there with uh, all of the various German language menus and German ways of dressing, of speaking, the German architecture and so on, th then why go if you don't expect to see something completely different? Racism is the inability to appreciate our differences because people are threatened when others are different. Now, there are movements afoot in various church organizations, and there have been from time immemorial, to cause everyone to be the same, to look the same, to act the same, to respond the same, to develop in the same way, to evince the same appetites and tastes and affinities. For example, all to enjoy the same kind of music. And that music may be, depending upon the leader of the church, the Gregorian chant, as the popes decided, belonged in church services. So the little boys get there and they have the echoes through the big uh, basilicas and so on, and they have the various kind of minor tone of the Gregorian chants, and they're going through these various songs. And it'll be harmonious to some degree, but everyone is supposed to appreciate that.
Once in a while, someone might decide that the only kind of music is the music which was music generated by homosexuals and uh, weirdos and way out uh, insane people way back in the uh, Renaissance period, the Beatles of their time. Now, those people were men named Debussy or Bach or Brahms or Beethoven. Many of those people were not accepted until long after they were dead. Some of them gained fame and fortune during their lifespan, and in some cases their lifespan was very brief. But in many, many cases they were never appreciated until long after they were dead, and now we know them as the classical composers. Along we come to a time like maybe Stephen Foster or George M. Cohan, or even people who were still alive like Irving Berlin. Magnificent music, but not everyone enjoys it. I could go down here to various honky-tonks around East Texas and walk in and hear music that would drive me up the walls, and I can hardly stand it. I'll turn on some of it, and if a man names Willie Nelson, some people like Willie Nelson, and that is great, and I'm glad they do, and he is smiling all the way to the bank, and it proves that singing through your nose is a good thing if you know how to do it well. And he is a multi, multi, multi millionaire, and he sings on key, and he sings a duet with Julio Estrada, not Julio Estrada, but uh, his, his name is not Estrada, Julio somebody. Iglesias, church, I should think, church, yeah. Julio Iglesia. Iglesias means churches in Spanish. Uh, so uh, Julius churches, uh, Julio Iglesias. And they have a duet out together. And millions of Americans love hearing that kind of music. Now, have I ever tried to tell the church that there is a specific kind of music that is righteous music or godly music, and there's another kind that is of the devil? I mean, I have my personal opinions punk rock, don't ask me, don't corner me now after church and say, now, Garner Ted, what is your opinion about punk rock? Is it of the devil or is it not? Because I don't want to be compromised. I want to let you have your idea and me have mine. But I'm able to appreciate the difference. I wouldn't want to go to Japan and hear American rock and roll, although increasingly that's what you hear when you go to Japan. You don't get to hear the kind of music I did when I was up at a town called Hakone at the foot of Mount Fujiyama in 1951. It was Japanese music with the girls with the rice powder on their faces and the little pearl fans, and they were doing this very elaborate dance and singing these very high-pitched, strain-sounding songs. But it was very, very interesting because it was ancient Japanese culture. And I was able to appreciate the differences. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection. He says something quite instructive about what's going to happen in the resurrection and also about the creation that God has placed for our enjoyment and for the beauty that we can have all about us. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says concerning the resurrection, some will ask, verse 35, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which you sow is not made alive, not quickened, except it die. That is a grain of wheat or something actually disintegrates or dies. But the wheat germ feeds on the endosperm and the decaying wheat grain and actually begins then to grow from the nutrient of the dying body that surrounds the germ. And that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but there is a little indelible 
formula or some sort of a, like a microchip, you might say, with a program in it, down inside that little microscopic germ in a grain of rice or whatever, and it becomes a big stalk and then reproduces hundreds of times. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, and aren't we glad? There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts. Now, there is a texture to beef. Most people seem to like beef. The beef industry has been hurt very badly in the last five to ten years because of a very great consciousness in the United States of heart disease and of cancer. And because of magazines like Prevention and others, dozens of others, books and the explosion of health food stores and so on, that have tended to link too much red meat, and I don't know that it's the red meat so much as it may be the things they are putting in the meat, the things the animals eat, the things they spray on the animals, the type of pellets or the foods that they are feeding them to cause rapid uh, fat content, the marble that they're putting in, and the fact that the fat stores the poisons that the body accumulates. I would suspect that, but I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a doctor, so I don't really know. That's just my suspicion. But nevertheless, the beef industry has been hurt, and so an awful lot of Americans are turning to chickens. Well, they may be jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, I don't really know. But anyway, chicken is probably better for you than steak, but aren't you glad that there are different types of flesh, that you have a choice? You can eat fish, you can say, now let's see, will I have the cod? Or should I have the lemon sole? Some people say, should I have the shark? Or should I have the swordfish, which is a skin fish, which I don't eat either? Or should I have today the red snapper? No, they got fresh grouper. I happen to know that fresh grouper has a better texture for this Cajun blackened fish than any other fish I've tried. And I'm very, very glad that there's all that variety available to me, and I can appreciate the difference. I can always appreciate the difference. Now, when I was in the military, they made me march, and I've often pondered on that because I was in the Navy. Now, when did you see anybody in the military in the middle of a war like the Sands of Iwo Jima? Okay, all the LCTs and LCVIs, LCIs, and all the rest of them land, the big ramps come down, the band starts up, they all shoulder their rifle, and they got the gleaming buttons, and they've got the white leggings and the brass hats and bayonets fixed, and the sun is catching the tip of the bayonet, and they all march off, and it's very, very inspiring, and they just march up through the surf, and they march toward the enemy. You never saw that happen, did you? Well, anciently, way back, when people fought wars by certain rules, and they thought you were really cheating if you didn't fight by their rules, the British used to fight that way. They'd march in three ranks, and they'd just march toward an enemy, and when they saw the enemy, they'd get into an open field. There was no such thing as a foxhole or getting down behind a stone hinge or, uh, I should say, a stone hedge or maybe behind a tree. That was cheating. So the American Minutemen had to teach them a thing or two in the Revolutionary War. And a handful of those Americans, those people that sharpened their, their uh, skills on uh, squirrels and foxes and uh, coyotes and wolves and deer and so on out in the woods, and they were crack shots and good marksmen. But the British would come marching up, and the front rank would kneel, and they would fire, and then they would pick up their rifle, and they would step back, and the next rank would come up and kneel on command. They would level, and they would fire. They would step back, and the third rank would then come and kneel and fire, and the rest of them were busily, of course, charging their old uh, brown bass muskets, as they were called. And that was the way they used to fight wars. Alexander the Great taught the Persian phalanxes a thing or two when they used to march in a wedge-shaped phalanx. 
to try to overpower another enemy force. And it was just masses of numbers marching toward them. I've always wondered about that because, in fact, the only reason for teaching sailors to march was to create out of civilians a military man and to make him march in step with someone else, to make him dress like someone else, shave off his head and make him wear the same haircut as everybody else, make him stay in the same dormitory called a barracks, eat the identical food, march to the same tune, follow the same orders, get up at identically the same time, do the same thing, go to bed to the same sound of music. Our music was a, was a bugle blowing over a loudspeaker. That's the only music we were allowed. I've often wondered why they did that to me, but I think I figured it out later on. It's to create out of you a person who will follow orders, who will do as you are told without thinking, who will actually begin to respond without any question, without any doubt, because it would be chaos and confusion otherwise, because a military organization is constituted to fight a war, to kill the enemy, to achieve victory on the battlefield. Why do they make me carry a rifle? I've never figured it out. We went through the rifle drill. We went through all of that. We would march and dress parade with our rifles, went over to Camp Matthews. The Marine Corps sergeant would sit on my shoulders when I'm in the sitting positions. they get those shoulders down. they would break my back. And we would fire. We would learn how to fire the M1 rifle, learn how to fire Browning BAR or the M1 carbine. And then I never saw a rifle again as long as I was in the Navy, except when I saw a Marine carrying one at the gate or maybe on our ship or something like that. But that was it. Never got to touch one again. Never got to fire one. They never issued me one. But they made me learn how to handle it, how to shoot it, and how to, how to march with it. Now, when you're marching, it's very exciting. It's exciting to the people who watch it. And believe it or not, it's exciting to the people to do it. Somehow, the idea that you are watching a whole file of people, you're watching a file this way out of the side of your eye, you're watching the file front ways out of the side of your eye, and you're watching the lines that go this way out of the side of your eye. And you are, as all the rest of them at the same time, are doing the same thing, trying to march exactly with the same stride, to the same cadence, same speed, and the same step because it's very inspiring to see a crowd of people going along looking the same, marching in the same direction, turning instantly at the same moment by the same command. Sometimes churchmen decide that that looks so good that they would like to see church people do that. The Catholics may have been the first, but I doubt that. Probably anciently in ancient Babylon there was somebody that came up with the idea that kids that go to church schools in ancient Babylon that studied under the mysteries of Semiramis would look better if they all wore the same kind of clothing. Now you can go to the Catholic schools and you will see that they all wear a uniform. And of course the Catholic hierarchy wears uniforms. The Pope does, and you can tell a cardinal because they've always got a scarlet cardinal-colored cap. That's the cardinal. He wears cardinal clothing. When you see a cardinal bird, you know that's a cardinal. And you can see the priest, or you can see the abbot, because he has a bald spot in his head. Or the priest wears a mitre, or he wears this thing over his shoulder and this dress that he puts on. So you know he's a religious person, because he's wearing a dress or a uniform. Sometimes even national entities decide that for the sake of nationalism, it is better to have all of their school children wear a uniform. So when you go to Israel, all the children in all the schools in Israel wear blue and white, and they have little caps, and they dress exactly alike. And they are taught, of course, about the Holocaust, and they are taken to the Yad Vashem and trooped through there, 
and there is a very massive national attempt to instill national history, national pride, national outrage toward pogroms directed against the Jews and a sense of identity with Israel. Well, the Bible actually tells us that God appreciates variety. Not only does he appreciate it, he seems to actually proportion it among members of the church and to demand that each of us achieve according to our own latent talents and gifts and that each of us develop uniquely and indeed separately because he says, What knowest thou, O husband, whether you shall save your wife, or, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? And I'll show you a little later something that has to do with personal salvation. So he goes on to say in verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun. You can see it right now today, blistering out there about 103 degrees, I should imagine. Another glory of the moon. Last night, very, very early in the evening, just as the sun was setting, late in the evening, I guess, early at night, we got in the boat. My sister and my wife and I went out in the lake, cut off the motor, and just sat there for a while, just lovely. The sun was down. And over here was Venus, just as bright and big as it could be like a beacon. And over here was Mars. Mars was red, and Venus was beautiful white. And we were talking about Mars, the red planet, and about Venus. And, you know, the fact that men have photographed and that actually space shots have landed on the surface of these places and brought back fabulous pictures and so on. Yes, it's true. There are differences of glory, meaning splendor, size, the type of uh, Venusian atmosphere on the one hand that is impenetrable, that is a thick layer of clouds and gases that apparently scientists have learned exactly what the gaseous composition is and the fantastic storms that are continually crackling away and lightning storms on the surface of Venus so that no human probe has ever actually determined what the surface looks like, whether it's all water or all rock or what in the world it is. On Mars, we can see it because apparently there is no atmosphere that would prevent us from seeing the surface of Mars, a lifeless surface, much like our moon. So there's one glory of the stars, and one star, God Almighty caused it to be that way. Now, as I said, he did not begin the first family with identical twins, but he made a difference. Can you imagine after Adam awakened from that deep sleep, from that total anesthesia, and the first operation in all of history, and there standing there in the altogether was Eve, his wife. And obviously she looked different. And I bet he was glad, because if, he, if she'd have looked just like he did, there would have been a problem. And uh, so God made male and female, and he made us different, yet perfectly answering to, complementing, and being like partners for each other. He goes on to say, then, so is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a spiritual, or a natural body, rather, and there is also a spiritual body. He says later on that as we have borne the image of the earthy, our own earthy parents, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, on the other hand, does that mean in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God, we will all look alike? Remember the pathetic story, and I will tell this without any element of racism in it, about the little black boy who decided he would play a trick on his parents. And so he got into his daddy's shoebox and he found some white shoe polish. 
and he put it all over his face. And he went into the kitchen where his mother was, and he grabbed her by the skirt where she was cooking the potatoes for the evening meal. He said, Look, Mommy, I'm a white boy. She says, Go away, son. Don't bother me. Can't you see I'm busy cooking? So he went in there to his dad, and he was sitting reading the newspaper, and he grabbed his dad's newspaper by the edge and tugged on it. He says, Look, Daddy, I'm a white boy. And his dad said, Go away, son. Don't bother me. So he went to his older brother, who was working on a bicycle out in the yard. And he grabbed him by the sleeve. He said, Look, brother, said, I'm a white boy now. His brother said, Get away from here. Can't you see I'm busy? He went into his room, and big old black streaks appeared down his cheeks. He began to cry. He said, I'm telling you, a white boy for ten minutes, and I'm having trouble with those blacks already. <laughs> well, you know, he wanted to be a white person. Now, there are an awful lot of white people, especially religious people, who want black people to be white people, and they resent the fact that they're black. We had an occasion, some individual who apparently was ordained as a deacon inside the Church of God International, and on a very unfortunate occasion, when a black family came in to visit in this particular church area on one of the annual holy days, this individual apparently been reading some of this, I don't have any adjective for it, but whatever, a profane, spurious, ridiculous uh, uh, literature, a kind of an underground literature that has circulated around many of, of these uh, clandestine organizations who suppose that the blacks are this or that, the Jews are not really the Jews, they are somebody else. Uh, there really was no, uh, no Holocaust. Uh, Hitler never roast a single Jew. Uh, there are American Nazis in Skokie, Illinois. There are people around here and there in Skokie. It's a Jewish community, and that's why they're there. That's why they want to the march in Skokie, Illinois, because it's a heavy Jewish community, and they want to cause the biggest problem that they possibly can. So these people are racists, and they hate the blacks, and they hate people who are different from them. They think that the white race is the superior race. They can't appreciate the black race. They think the black race is a, uh, a mistake of some sort. So this guy is standing in the pulpit, preaching to members of the Church of God International, and allows as how Satan the devil came down and cohabited with Eve, committed adultery with Eve, I guess, while Adam was out plucking uh, figs or somewhere, fashioning a new apron. I don't know what's going on. And Cain was the result, and said this from the pulpit, not in those words, but was talking about the fact, the idea, that Satan the devil is the father of Cain and that Cain was a black man, and that this was evil, and so on. Well, I understand that the guy had to be interrupted in the middle of the sermon, and the minister sort of take over and begin to try to settle things down. I don't know what in the world these poor black people would have said. I remember one man who is a racist, and unfortunately I had to prevent him from preaching ever again after he made this statement. And it got back to Mayor Tom Bradley, because we were working with the Los Angeles Police Department, and I had actually visited with Tom Bradley, who was a black man, very large man, a very handsome man, large head, very, very intelligent, and he was the mayor, he, I'm sorry, he is the mayor now, but he had been then the police chief, excuse me, he went from police chief to mayor, and at that time he was still the chief of police, I believe, maybe he was just elected to the mayor uh, position of mayor at the time that this occurred, but we had written the booklet on Here's How to Stop Crime, and the Los Angeles Police Department had their own brochure and had billboards all over the city with a picture of a criminal, which was the identical picture we adopted for the cover, that said, Harden the Target, trying to tell widows and shut-ins and elderly people and people all over the community to get these peepholes, to lock, double-lock the door, to cut down shrubbery where a person could hide and to protect themselves from criminals and rapists and robbers and so on. 
and to make it more difficult for these people who are drug addicts that have about a $150 a day habit to steal your TV set. Well, because we had had Tom Bradley, who was a black man, and other members of the police department and the mayor's office up in the faculty dining room, we had a large number of black people, including black ministers, uh, in the church, some of our most respected and some of our best speakers, some of our best singers and so on, Mike Lord, that everybody was just moved to hear him sing. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of black brethren in the church. But this one man gets up there and starts in on this business about Israel and goes back into the Old Testament and actually let drop the idea that blacks have a, as a, as a class now, if you can imagine this, have a different odor than white people do. That apparently dogs can tell the difference. Well, I'll tell you, there were black people, including a couple of black ministers, who got up and walked out of the auditorium. I think they should have walked in the other direction. I think they should have walked to the platform and laid hands suddenly on this fellow, and that I think he should have been taken out with his feet not quite touching the carpet to the cheers, and that would have what that, that would have happened, you know. I mean, it would have been a standing ovation if somebody would simply removed him. Well, I had him removed, and I guess he was allowed to preach up at Santa Barbara someplace. After I've really been proud of that record, been very thankful I was able to do that to him. He was able to disfellowship me for the second time, and that was the only way he was able to get back at me. Uh, about a month after my father wrote the marking letter, he wrote a letter about how, how I was marked. And I thought that, well, good for you. That, I'm sure you enjoyed that. But it was the only way he could get back at me for that. But I would do it again if I had the chance. For somebody to make a statement like that, they shouldn't be preaching out of a pulpit, really any pulpit from that standpoint. You know, the United States hasn't learned we are not a global world-ruling empire. And there are a lot of racists in our community, including Jesse Jackson. And people like Jesse Jackson kind of remind me of the little old lady sitting there in her living room with a whole stack of newspapers and magazines at her feet, and there's a globe all misshapen with all sorts of big indentations and obviously just been beat half to death, and they're dangling by the side of the globe is about a nine-pound ball-peen hammer. And the little old lady with her specs on her nose is reading about this trouble spot or that, and she's wearing the globe over to Russia and giving it a whack, you know, and the globe is beaten to death. Well, like a lot of people, they can't be happy as long as they can't control what's happening somewhere else. So the United States is apparently very upset. Many senators, especially some of the black people and the NAACP and other organizations, with President Reagan's middle-of-the-road statement. Bishop Tutu is quoted widely. He has been invented and created by the Western news media. He had no standing in South Africa before the creation of Bishop Tutu as being a great leader by the Western news media. So if these people can have their way, they will enjoy their chicken fried steaks and their vacations and their visit to Harlem or the Bronx or Philadelphia or Baltimore. They will enjoy their life with their wife and with their family and their life in America if they can just know somehow that a bloody revolution has taken place in South Africa, that South Africa is going to go the same way that Kenya did, the same way that Rhodesia did, which is now called Zimbabwe. And that in South Africa, where in spite of the riots and the problems you hear about in Soweto, the blacks are better off on a per capita basis than any other nation in Africa. And where some of the worst persecutions in all Africa have been black single party governments against blacks. It happened in Kenya when Jomo Kenyatta assassinated the leader of the opposition. 
and the state police were seen to be dragging him in a black Cadillac, took him down to a game preserve right where Charles Honey and I spent a couple of nights one time, and machine gunned the poor guy and tossed his body out in a Messiah watering hole and left him there. And it was widely known who engineered the assassination. The Ebos can't stand the houses in Nigeria. And the Mashona cannot stand uh, the Matabili in Zimbabwe. And they've been wiping them out systematically, killing them, because they're members of different tribes. The Watusis are almost gone from the East African highlands because they've been obliterated by other tribes who can't stand them. They would look the same to you and me, but they're of a different tribe. So there are Americans who, for whatever their purposes, I personally happen to think it's political expediency. I happen to think that it's an issue. I happen to think the American black vote is more at stake than their own heartfelt feeling toward the poor blacks of South Africa. Now, if you've been there, if you've been there many times, if you've been out among the blacks, if you've actually seen the conditions, if you've seen the government try to move blacks into roundels, try to educate them, seen the blacks move back out and continue their migratory patterns or live on the tribal homelands, seen the government give a black woman a dress to wear, have her take a pair of scissors or a knife and cut large holes for her breasts to escape. And I have seen such women walking down the roads in South Africa because they refuse to wear the white people's dress in those areas. If you've been there, if you've talked to the people and the farmers about the people who move in on the country, on their, their land, and then begin to grow corn, and then what happens if they have a good crop? This one farmer was telling me about black African farmer moved on to his ranch. He didn't say a word. They just moved and just lived there. Just wandered around like always. And pretty soon he came over and complained to the white farmer because the white farmer had this gorgeous, huge, big stand of corn. Hundreds of acres, I guess, about eight feet tall. Well, the black had this pitiful little patch of corn about half the size of this room. Yellow and short, and not very well, you know, eared and not very uh, well producing. And he thought that the white man had pronounced a curse on his corn had in some way sabotaged it. Well, a white farmer, and I think his name was MacArthur, he went over and he said, no, that wasn't it. He said, you see, I fertilize my soil, and here's the way I plow, and here's the way I water it. So he taught the black farmer. The next year, the black farmer had a gorgeous big stand of corn, identical to the white farmer. But then the black farmer became very unhappy, because in the next year, about 40 of his relatives moved in. And he was overrun with people. There were kids and wives and people everywhere. And they were eating him out of house and home. You know what he did? He refused to plant that much corn the following year. He went back to his little old stand of corn. He refused to irrigate it. He refused to, to fertilize it. He went back to growing corn the way he had before he complained to the white farmer. Now, that's a true story. That really happened. But I'll guarantee you the people there are basically a hundred years behind civilization. It doesn't mean they shouldn't have an opportunity, and it doesn't mean that they don't have an opportunity if you really knew the facts the way they are. But the idea that some of us in this country cannot be satisfied unless we see a violent, bloody revolution of a single-party black system taking over in South Africa, and then a white flight of all of the people who are the engineers and the people that make the country run leaving the country as they did in Kenya to a large extent, as they did in Zimbabwe in a large extent, and then seeing it just go down the drain, well, that'll be something else again. I can't help but comment because to me that is racism at its worst. It is opportunism. 
It is beating the drum of a popular issue to get votes to try to propel a particular black man into the White House of the United States, and it has nothing to do with a man on his knees in his closet saying, Oh Lord, please help my brothers in South Africa, who means from his heart that he is hurting for the terrible persecutions heaped upon some suffering people elsewhere. Otherwise, they could not have been silent about the killing of one million people in Kampuchea by the government of Pol Pot. They would be of the same attitude wherever they saw pogroms or terrorism or racism or the deprivation of privilege or the absence of human rights. They would not be selective in their application of human rights. They would apply it equally across the board, and there are plenty of nations to go around, especially single-party black states in Africa. Well, I think it's time we understood in the church that we can appreciate one another's differences. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12 in concluding right quickly. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, is the chapter about differences in the church, different gifts, different administrations. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Then he goes on to say that we used to be Gentiles, they were then, those people in Corinth, and he said there are differences or diversities, verse 4, of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of administrations, meaning functions, different methods, different manners, by which people can serve and help their brother, their fellow man, by which they can work within the church, they can help to preach the gospel. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. Now, how did Jesus mean, what did he mean when he said to the Jews, you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God? How can they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob if they're all alike? How do you imagine people are going to be in the resurrection? What Paul is trying to teach you in 1 Corinthians 15, where we were, is that as there are different kinds of animals, and different kinds of men and women, as there are different kinds of fish and different kinds of birds, and as there are different types of bodies in the heavens, celestial or terrestrial, so it is in the resurrection. There will be different degrees of glory, different degrees of splendor, different degrees of stature and of ability in the family and the kingdom of God. A shocking concept? It's never been preached before in the church to my knowledge. Everybody in the kingdom of God will not be the same. They won't have exactly, identically the same function. I do not believe everybody in the kingdom of God is going to be a creator, because not everyone is gifted in creative ability. I do not believe that there will be lesser lights in the sense of people who cannot function at the God level, even as David prayed, I would rather be a doorkeeper. doesn't mean they're going to be doorkeepers. Some people have thought that they're going to be people just opening doors for all eternity. Nonsense. When you're a spirit being, you don't need doors. You just go through the wall. But David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the kingdom of God than, of course, the greatest man on this earth, etc. And I can see what he means in metaphor. But if Jesus said, you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, how, do you, how are you going to know? Are they wearing a sign? Have they got a placard in the first great committee meeting in heaven? I don't mean in heaven, but you know, in the kingdom of God on this earth. Hi, my name is Abraham. They're going to look like Abraham. We're going to learn what Abraham looked like. And here they are in the kingdom of God, the family of God, but they will look like they did as a human being. But they will be glorified. When Jesus was glorified and he came back, he looked like the disfigured Christ who had been taken down from the stake and buried at the tomb of uh, 
Joseph of Arimathea. He still had his scars. Now, of course, in his glorified sense, I'm sure those scars will have disappeared and we will see him as he was originally. But there are things beyond our understanding. But God does say there are diversities and differences even in the church, but it is the same God which works all in all or everywhere in every one. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit therewith. To one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, not the same one, the word of knowledge. To another, a different person, faith. And to another, the gifts of healing. And oh, I wish we had those gifts in the church of God today. My sister is here visiting with us, and she brought a letter none of us in the family knew existed. And I have quoted it in a book that I'm working on, a first chapter of which I have sent to a publisher. And I'll share it with you briefly. It was written in 1927 to a lady that was a girlfriend of my mother's during her high school days in Iowa. Three years before I was born, they were living in Astoria, Oregon at the time, and while she had had an Airedale dog attack her and bite her very deeply and badly in the arm. And then the doctor had actually cleansed and tried to sew it up or whatever, and that was gradually healing, apparently, when she embedded a thorn from a rose bush deeply in her finger, and it became infected. Well, she developed a very high fever, and she was uh, apparently developing blood poisoning. There was, it was very red and all swollen, and she was hospitalized, or else the doctor came to see her in her home. I don't know which it was, but I think maybe he just came to the home. And she developed a very high fever. Now, at the very same time, as she is under a doctor's care, and the doctor has had to lance this thing several times, she develops a terrible case of laryngitis, and her throat swells so bad that she cannot swallow, and she can't take water or food, and it even swells on the outside. Inside and outside, the throat is swollen, and in those days they called it quinzy. As she was lying there, unable to eat or drink, she had gone from a normal 102 or 104 body weight to 83 or 84 pounds, was lying in bed with the bones actually hurting her, was unable to lie in a comfortable position because the bones, she said, of her hips were seeming to just cut through her flesh. And she told of that in the letter. She is very near death, and she thinks she is going to die, and she developed lockjaw. Her jaw froze absolutely rigidly together, and they couldn't pry her jaws apart. Blood poisoning, locked jaw, quincy, and a terrible infection. The doctor said now he was going to have to come in and scrape the bone because he didn't know how else to get rid of the infection. Very concerned neighbor lady who lived next door came over while my Aunt Bertha was there, my mother's sister, and my dad, and told them about a family that she said was just a Christian family who seemed to have great faith. And she asked my mom and dad, do you believe in divine healing? Do you believe God can heal? They said, well, yes, we do. Well, this family came over. The man was not a minister. At least I don't know that he was a minister. I don't think my mom knew whether he was or not. But they knelt by the bedside. My mother was in the bed. My father knelt, and this couple, and I don't know if my Aunt Bertha was there at this time, and he anointed her with oil and laid his hands on her head and began in a very calm, conversational manner, seemingly just talking to God. And he just reminded God of all of the scriptures. He reminded God that he had promised to heal, and he quoted the scriptures about those promises. And then just continuing on, now we thank you, and he just started thanking God, she wrote in the letter, before he ever got up on his knees, that my mother was healed, that God had heard, and that he had done what God had promised. And then they got up from their knees. 
and in the next few moments those swellings disappeared. My mother's jaw opened. She sat up in bed. She asked for something cold to drink. Those people began praising God. They went home next door. My mom got out of bed, put on a big overcoat, and I guess it was winter, and had to get out of that house. She'd been in the house for so long, she just had to escape the house. And she and my dad got out and walked around during the night and came back in and slept all night long until the next day at noon, the greatest night's sleep she'd had in weeks, and then got up and went about her household chores the next day. Now that happened. God says in Philippians 2 and verse 12 that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He gives different gifts, different degrees of administrations, different functions, different knowledge, and as I said, the gifts of healing. I wish that those gifts were in God's church to the degree that they were in that family of neighbor people to my parents back in Astoria in 1927 because that was a miracle of tremendous proportions and of course I wouldn't be here if it hadn't occurred because my mom could never have had any other children and I wasn't even on the uh, schedule yet. I was three years downstream somewhere. So it says very, very clearly in Philippians 2 and verse 12 that each of us is to work out his own salvation and I emphasize the words your own salvation. I've said time and again that God does not want us to be yellow pencils in a box that God wants us to appreciate each other's differences, that there is room for different tastes, different appetites, different degrees of enjoyment of music, different desires from the standpoint of clothing styles or automobiles, and aren't we thankful that that is true, and different degrees of appreciation of things like music or art or literature, and even different opinions concerning certain aspects of the Bible, the Word of God, of history, archaeology, of prophecy, and the future of some doctrines. There can be no differences with regard, of course, to the basic program and the plan of God, the Sabbath, the annual holy days, those doctrines of God's church that are so absolutely locked in place and cast in concrete there can be no question about them. But in those areas of personal taste and choice, God allows us great latitude. He appreciates it. He wants us to be individuals, and he wants us in his kingdom as individual, unique personalities, because each one of us is necessary for the great program that he has in mind. He wants a widely varied family, or else he would not have put us in a creation of such infinite and beautiful variety.